I'm wanting to welcome you back to our study, our series that we're in, in the books of Samuel. A couple of weeks ago, Steve taught us about Hannah, this barren woman who begged God. She cried out to God for a child, and she promised if he would give her one, she would give that child back, and that's exactly what she did. The boy Samuel grew up serving God in the tabernacle, and in a time when messages from God were rare, Samuel learned to hear from God. He learned to listen, and he became a prophet that God would use to give messages to the people. We'll get to the text in just a minute, and we'll see that Samuel poses a question to the people, and I want to begin with part of that question for us this morning. How serious are you? Are you really serious? Have you ever thought about that question? Maybe you were selling a used car and you looked right into the eyes of your prospective buyer and said, how serious are you that this is the one you want to drive home today? They got out their checkbook and showed you just how serious they were. Or maybe you were dating someone and she said to you, are you very serious about this relationship? And so you proved how serious you were by dropping to one knee and asking her to marry you. If a loved one is seriously ill, we know they're really sick. If someone is in serious debt, we know they owe a whole lot of money. If someone is a serious Seattle Seahawks fan, we know they're really frustrated right now. <laughs> when we use that word serious, we all sort of understand to some degree we're talking about things that matter to us. This weekend, we pick up with the people of God and it's at a time that they aren't walking closely with God. And Samuel will ask them how serious they are about returning to the Lord. It's an important conversation, a critical time in their journey. And the choices they make will reveal the condition of their hearts. And as we go through this together this morning, God will speak to our hearts too. We pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and that's page 444 in the Pew Bible. The people of God have been battling back and forth with their enemy, the Philistines. And the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. That's the Ark where the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments engraved on them, the, the, those tablets are kept in this Ark. The very presence of God resides with this ark and the enemy captured it like it would become a spiritual good luck charm for them but the God of the universe did nothing but give them trouble and so before long they sent the ark and God and those stone tablets back to Israel and that's when we pick up in chapter 7 verse 2 the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim for a long time 20 years in all. During that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. Even though the ark has been with them for 20 years, they feel abandoned. They're, they're mourning. They're, they're sad. 
And it's after that long period, 20 years, that's when Samuel recognizes the time to speak. Perhaps he watched the people and he knew this national state of mourning would present the opportunity for him to speak to them from God. Verse 3 Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, if you're really serious about wanting to return to the Lord, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. Determine to obey only the Lord, then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshiped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and in that great ceremony drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. God's presence, the ark, has been with them for 20 years. But they feel he's abandoned them. Samuel says right in that moment, if you're really serious about the Lord, get rid of the false gods and obey him only. But wait a minute. These people think God has abandoned them. But Samuel tells them, no, you have wandered away from God. Samuel tells them, get rid of these false gods. They can't even be anywhere near. You can't be worshiping idols. The presence of these false gods told a very grim story. The the people of Israel had set up shrines to false gods just like their neighbors had been doing. Baal was known to be the god of thunder and re- excuse me, of thunder and rain. So when they worshiped Baal, they were asking him to make their crops grow, not the true god. Ashtoreth was another one of these foreign gods, the presence of which showed this terrible slide into sexual indulgence. So God's people were dabbling in all kinds of sin and perversion. God hadn't abandoned them. They had crowded him out. And Samuel calls them on it. God wants your whole heart, Samuel tells them. God wants to be the absolute king of your heart. If you're really serious about returning to the Lord, you won't worship other gods. You'll obey the one and true God only. These are the things you do if you're serious about returning to the Lord. Now, it's important for us to notice Samuel doesn't tell them to be perfect. He doesn't tell them to work harder to try and please God. God isn't the king of perfect people. He's not the king of hardworking people. He wants to be the king of their hearts. The only God they greet in the morning. The only God they chat with during the day. The only one they call out to for crops to grow, healthy sexuality, everything in life. Call out to God alone. The only one to worship and obey. Why does he feel so strongly about this? It's because of his great love for these people. The only motive God has ever had toward his people is his love 
Look at this with me. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord didn't set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. But he does not hesitate to punish and destroy those who reject him. The God who calls them to singleness of heart, the God who calls them to obey is a loving God, a faithful God, a promise-keeping God. He is serious about them, and he wants them to be serious about him. Knowing him, having a right view of him, will help them obey I have an illustration and it's not a perfect one and I know that and before I share it, I want you to know if my husband were here, he would want you to know that he finds me to be one of the most law-abiding citizens he's ever known. So I've given the disclaimer and now for the illustration. Over the decades that I have been a licensed driver, I've had opportunity to interact with some men in blue uniforms who had flashing lights on top of their cars. One time, this man pulled me over and he was really mean. He yelled at me, he accused my motives. I I was guilty, I had broken the law, but I just wanted to cry and I wondered why he had to be so mean about it. And then another time, it must have been his first day, um, he, he acted like it hurt him more than it hurt me. <laughs> and then there was the officer who seemed to embody the public servant persona. He recorded our whole conversation. He was patient with me. He took time to explain things. He gave me opportunity to ask questions. He referenced his care and concern for my passengers. Don't get me wrong. Again, I broke the law. I was guilty. But he dealt with me in such a way that caused me to want to be serious about the law. The God who calls his people to singleness of heart. He is serious, serious about these people, but in all the right ways. He cares about them. He cares about their passengers. So the people of Israel got serious about God too. 
They got rid of the false gods. They confessed their sins. And while the ceremony was still going on, the Philistines gathered to attack and the people knew enough this time to cry out to the one true God, the only true God, and he showed up with this booming voice, sent the enemy into confusion. And basically, all the men of Israel had to do was sweep up the mess. And then we come to verse 12 of chapter 7. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshanah. He named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. Mizpah is this place about seven miles from Jerusalem. And when they set up the stone there, Samuel knew that Everybody going by this kind of busy intersection would see it and would remember. Up to this point, the Lord has helped us. They would remember what God had done for them. Their history with God was rich. God had called their forefather Abraham out of obscurity and made great promises to him. And even when God's people were unfaithful, God remained faithful to them. Through famine, betrayal, slavery, God faithfully cared for his people. They didn't always understand his time frame. They didn't always understand him. But always, always, without fail, God took care of them. He rescued them out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He delivered meat to them in the evening and bread in the mornings. He appeared as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Their lives weren't free from stress. Their lives weren't free of difficulty. But no matter what, God kept his promises to them. He proved to be a one-of-a-kind king the only king worthy of their worship. He even scared the wits out of the Philistines when he growled at them like a mother bear defending her cubs from predators. And right there in the midst of that scene, Samuel and all the people set up this monument, this stone of help, this reminder that God was with them. How good are you at remembering the things God has done for you? Maybe it's way back in your family history, God did something, or maybe something as recently as this week. Have you ever considered setting up memorials that help you remember? It can be pretty easy to do. A wedding ring can become a memorial. The grocery store logo can help you thank God every time you see it that he provides food for you and your family. The journal where you record your secrets to God can be a memorial to him and his great work he's doing deep within you. Your diploma can memorialize how God helped you through school. I want us to spend a few minutes on this because it seems key to us not wandering. So I'm going to share a number of memorials from my life, not because they're the end-all be-all, but I hope it'll jog all of our memories and we'll be better at memorializing the things God does. 
When I was growing up, my dad, a native Kentuckian, raised me to be a University of Kentucky basketball fan. And believe it or not, even against my own alma mater, when it comes to basketball, I root for Kentucky. I teach my children cheers. I outfit them in uniforms. But it's not about basketball or the fact that my dad is a great Kentucky fan. No, it's a way that I remember the dad that God provided. The man who's been married to my mother for 59 and a half years. The man who provided for me and my siblings. The man who came to my ball games and concerts. The man who has walked faithfully with God. When I watch or see that wildcat, I think of what God has done for me through that great wildcat fan. Four years ago, I was in the hospital with an intestinal thing and I lay there for 11 days. Now imagine what it's like for a woman who has three young little kids and she's hooked up to machines in the hospital. God took care of my children in such an amazing way that throughout that summer and well into the next years, every time I took those officially Salem Hospital issued footies and put them on my feet, I remembered. I set up a stone of remembrance up to this point. God has taken care of me. God has been with me. Another one, 10 years ago, I met a woman in Africa, and when she learned of my longing for children, she prayed a twin blessing over me. And to this day, when I look at her picture, I am reminded that God was already involved with my children even before they were conceived. My daughter, her name is Sarah. That's my mom's name. And so there's this little perky brown-haired monument to God thanking him for the mother he gave me. This ring on my finger memorializes a friend that I had for 20 years. And when she died, I knew I didn't want to forget what a rich friendship God had given me. June 20th, my wedding anniversary. My husband is a man among men. The day God gave him to me was a day of a great gift. And that date can become a memorial to God. Up to this point, he's been with us. One final one. In Kaiser, where I live, there's this memorial walk, and it's called the Susan Garlinger Memorial Walk, and probably you've not heard of it. Um, we don't have t-shirts. We, we, um, we don't have any official date or anything, but how it started a couple of years ago, on my birthday, my husband was at work and my kids were at school. And sitting in the house where we live now, I'll confess, I was pining away for how easy life seemed in the other house where we used to live. And so I put my shoes on and I walked over to that house. And I mean, there's no plaque. It's not a historic, you know, building or anything. But as I turned the corner and I began to walk back, 
I made a covenant with God that the God I knew was with me there when life seemed so easy was also the God that I know is over at the new address where life has gotten a whole lot more difficult. Throughout our lives, we have moments, events, places, people, times, and when we set them up and thank God for them, when we make a little memorial, we are so much more apt to remember. Israel set up a memorial to God, and you and I can do it too. Up to this point, the Lord has helped us. Chapter 7 ends in this kind of this place of glory. Peace is restored to Israel. God's hand is against their enemies. God had helped them. They had all experienced it. They even all went to the ceremony where they set up the memorial. You would think they would just be basking in the glow of it all. But their memories were tragically short. And circumstances got the best of them. Chapter 8, verse 1. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you're now old and your sons aren't like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they've continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. This was going to be a shaky transition of leadership at best. But this is more than assessing somebody's leadership prowess. This is a mob mentality. Maybe a couple of the elders gathered at the water cooler and they started complaining. Or maybe some of the elders started looking over the fence and seeing what the neighbors were doing. We don't know for sure. But what we know is history tells us all the elders met with Samuel and demanded a king. Not just one or two or three of them. All of them. Somehow it was possible for all of them to forget their rich history with God. They forgot his love for them. They forgot the day he thundered his voice at the Philistines. They forgot the day they set up that memorial and made a commitment to him. And when they looked to see what the other people were doing, it took their eyes off God God explained to Samuel, don't worry, it's not you they're rejecting. They're rejecting me as their king. The God of the universe has just been rejected. But he's a big enough God to pour out mercy on those who've rejected him. To give them a chance to rethink 
what it is they're about to do. Samuel goes to the people and says, oh, this human king is going to draft your sons into his army. He's going to draft, make your sons plow his fields and work and harvest his crops. He's going to take your daughters and make them cook and bake and who knows what else. He's going to take the best fields and the best vineyards you have and give them to his friends. He's going to tax you and pay his employees. He's going to make you slaves. Was there nobody willing to take the warning seriously? Was anybody willing to stand with Samuel and keep God as king? Verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Imagine Samuel's shock. God was giving the people what they had demanded, like a spoiled kid, I want what I want when I want it, like a toddler in the candy aisle. And Samuel must have been standing there holding his breath, caught between God's very best and the demands of the people in the form of their willful choice. Look with me at this. It's undeniable that the Lord sometimes rebukes the people for wanting a king, but at other times declares it to be his desire and blessing for them to have one. The tension is between the Lord's desire that Israel have a king for the right reasons and his disgust at the people's wrong reasons for wanting one. God wanted to be the king of their hearts, but their hearts had betrayed him. You can't have two kings. They were wandering away from God again putting someone else in his throne. Do you know that God wants to be the king of our hearts too? How serious are you? How serious am I about worshiping and obeying him alone? As we finish up, I want us to look at three words that will help us with this, I think. The first word is resolve. Samuel told the people they had to do something to show that they had the resolve to return to the Lord and be serious about it. He told them, worship only God, obey only God. This is the choice to have no other idols set up in our lives. Are there any idols in your lives? Maybe the pursuit of pleasure or beauty or money or sex. Maybe the stubborn choice to be king of your own life. Maybe it's when I or when, when we believe our own understanding is the end all, be all. Have you resolved to worship and obey 
God and God alone. The next word, remember. Remembering who God is and what he has done keeps us focused on him. Is there a monument you need to set up in your life to help you remember? It could be any number of personal things for us. Or what about a corporate decision? Back in January, you may recall that this cloth that's now wrapped around the cross, Steve had it spread across the front of the church here and invited us to respond to God with commitment by signing our names. And those of us who did that were committing to pursue holiness, to ask for the fullness of the Spirit, to be faithful in public and private worship, to immerse ourselves in Scripture, to commit to community, to love our neighbors, and to practice generosity. When we join with each other and when we encourage each other, we'll remember the king of our hearts. What do you need to do in order to help yourself remember? And the third word, rethink. When Israel was about to make this terrible mistake and wander from God again, he poured his mercy out on them and urged them to rethink what they were about to do. And this morning, I want to ask, is there a sinful choice you're about to make or that you're already living in? And do you know that God pours out his mercy on you? He wants you to use that mind that he's given you to rethink what it is you're about to do. Consequences surely await if you wander from the king who is worthy to be the king of your heart. Samuel told the people, if you're really serious about returning to the Lord, you'll worship only him. You'll obey only him. And for you and for me, this morning, it's the same thing. Will we be a people who resolve and who remember and who rethink and who encourage each other in these things? Oh God, we come to you, the only God, the only one worthy of our praise, the only one worthy of our worship, of our obedience. In these moments, will you continue speaking to us and will you draw us to you in such a way that we will be really serious about remaining with you?